0: Thank you, Isabel, for leading us in that beautiful, ancient hymn. It's a hymn that has been on my heart and on my mind, um, as I've been studying John chapter three. It's, well, just beautiful: "Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Riches I heed not, nor vain, empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. These are fitting words, aren't they, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who love him? Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to have a clearer vision of our Lord to have an all-encompassing, Christ-exalting vision of glory. To see and to treasure our Savior. The Gospel of John is full of glory. We saw this last time we met, right? When we looked as Jesus began his earthly ministry. We saw his glory Jesus, the Son of Man, the Heavenly Bridegroom, the Divine Son of God. And ladies, when you genuinely see his glory, the only result is love and belief. And this fulfills the purpose of the Gospel of John. John 20, 31 says, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. But I want to see even more glory. Don't you? Isn't this your prayer? Are you full of the joy of Jesus, and are you ready to see him? Are you ready to be reminded of who he is? Are you ready to turn your eyes upon Jesus? I hope so, because today we will sit in the classroom of John 3, where Jesus, the master teacher, and John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, will be our instructors. Together, these teachers, they will help us look to Christ so that those of you who don't know him might be saved. And that those of you who do know him and who love him will find assurance and you'll have joy in the salvation that God has granted you. Our outline this morning will revolve around these two teachers. We will learn, number one in our outline, lessons from the master teacher. This will be found in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Number two in our outline will be lessons from the greatest prophet. And this will be found in verses 32 through 36. So first, we will learn five lessons from the master teacher. Remember, verses 1 through 21. But first, as we start to read, we're going to backtrack just a couple verses into chapter 2. So turn with me to John 2, verses 23. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many people believed in his, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Literally, remember that can be translated. He did not believe their belief. For he, Jesus, he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning men, for he himself, knew what was in man now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Jesus knew man and what was in man's heart and now here is a man coming to Jesus. Nicodemus though, was not just any man. He was a prominent member of the Pharisees, the most fastidious group in all of Israel. The Pharisees were well known for how meticulous and demanding they were concerning the law. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the elite ruling, ruling body of the Jews, and he was well known and well respected. Jesus even calls him the teacher of Israel in verse 10. Nicodemus, intrigued by Jesus, he came to ask some questions. He had heard of and perhaps even seen some of the signs that Jesus performed, and he wanted to gather more information. In verse 2, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, on the surface, it looks like Nicodemus may have believed in Jesus, right? He acknowledged that Jesus had come from God. He recognized that Jesus was a great teacher. Nicodemus believed, but Jesus did not believe his belief. Nicodemus did see something impressive, But it fell short of the glory of Messiah because he wasn't convinced. He still had some questions. Who is he? Is he a prophet? Could this be the Messiah? Nicodemus, he wanted to speak to Jesus and he wanted to determine who he really was. Jesus, though, he did not even acknowledge Nicodemus's greeting because he knew all men and he knew Nicodemus's heart. And so he got right to the heart of the issue. Jesus knew what this teacher really wanted and he knew his real need. Nicodemus was so spiritually blind that even though he eagerly anticipated the kingdom of heaven, He couldn't even recognize the king of heaven when he arrived. He didn't understand the kingdom of God, and he didn't even know how to enter it. Nicodemus, he assumed that because he was an Israelite and he kept the law externally, that he would be qualified to enter the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus knew that he believed that. Nicodemus didn't understand that entering the kingdom of heaven does not come through lineage or through law-keeping, but through a spiritual transformation. Nicodemus needed to be born again. So Jesus, who knew what he needed most, proceeded to teach him. And what was his first lesson? Number one, the first lesson of our master teacher is that the new birth is an essential work. The new birth is an essential work. This is in verses one through three. In verse three, Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. All Who would enter the kingdom of God and even all who would see, who would understand and comprehend spiritual things must be born again. But why? Why couldn't Nicodemus understand spiritual things? Why did he need a new birth to see glory? Why can't someone just enter the kingdom of heaven just the way you are? The answer is because our first birth left us spiritually blind and spiritually dead. So we need a new birth. A new birth is essential because all people are born glory blind. They are incapable of seeing the beauty of Christ and the ugliness of sin. Second Corinthians four, four says the God of this world has blinded their minds, blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are blind. A new birth is essential because every person is born spiritually lifeless. According to Ephesians 2, the sinner is dead in their trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world and living in the desires of the flesh. By nature, children of wrath, they are dead. Every single element of the sinner's nature is corrupted by sin. Their flesh is corrupted. Their intellect is corrupted. Their priorities are corrupted. Their passions are corrupted. Their affections are corrupted. Their will is corrupted. Their worship is corrupted. The dead sinner has no capacity to desire the things of God. They have no ability to see his beauty. They have no love for his ways, no ability to serve, to love, or to please God. It's not, ladies, it's not that they won't love God, which they won't, but it's that they can't love God. They're dead. They're blind. They need a spiritual resurrection from the grave of sin. They need the life of God in their soul. The sinner can't turn their eyes upon Jesus and look at his loveliness because he's not lovely. Until he saves them. And then he becomes, oh, so lovely. So glorious. They need the light of God to shine in their hearts to enable them to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The new birth is required. No one can enter the kingdom of God without becoming a kingdom citizen. No one can see the glory of Jesus without the eyes of their heart being opened. No one can live eternally with God without receiving a new nature. You must be born again. Nicodemus, though, he struggled to understand Jesus' analogy. He just didn't get it. But it was because he was still spiritually blind. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus didn't get it. And so Jesus teaches his second lesson. This is number two. The second lesson from our master teacher. The new birth is not a result of man's work. The new birth is not a result of man's work. Let's read verses four and five. Again, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again, be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Jesus responded, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus' question doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface. How can a man be born again when he's old? How can a man enter into his, woman, his mother's womb and be born again? But did you catch it? Nicodemus asked Jesus the wrong question. Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can I enter to be born? Jesus responded to Nicodemus, you must be born to enter. The new birth is not a result of man's work. There's nothing you can do to be born. A person has as much to do with their spiritual birth as they did their physical birth. Entering the kingdom of heaven on the basis of your own works it's as crazy as a grown man crawling back into his mother's womb. And that's exactly what Nicodemus mentioned, what he suggested. Crazy. It's crazy. The new birth is not something you do. It's something that is done to you. You can't save yourself. You can't raise yourself from the dead. But you must be born again. And this was not what Nicodemus wanted to hear. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, remember? He was the teacher of Israel. He had devoted his whole life to doing everything he could to please God and to be worthy to enter the kingdom. He didn't want anyone coming and telling him that everything he had done in his life amounted to nothing spiritually. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. With one sentence, Jesus destroyed Nicodemus' whole tower of self-righteousness. And this was terrible news for Nicodemus. But friend, it's even worse news for you. Because of Nicodemus... Couldn't save himself having reached the pinnacle of human religion, then you, if you are relying on your own efforts, you have no hope. I have no hope. Nothing you do will save yourself. Baptism can't save you, growing up in a Christian home can't save you, good works. Can't save you. Knowledge or theological training. Can't save you. Religious zealousness or piety. Can't save you. Nothing. The dead don't feel. They don't speak. They don't move. They don't act. They just sit there. Spiritually rotting. Until God breathes new life into them. Causing them to become new creatures in Christ. And sisters. Is it not the case for you and I that when we reflect on our spiritual inability, our assurance is increased? Because we know we had nothing to do with our salvation, so we can never lose it. And our joy, it's overflowing because of the fact that we're saved at all, Because we know there's nothing good in us, and it only demonstrates God's love for us. And so we've seen that we're completely incapable of producing the new birth, but it is essential for salvation. So what exactly is the new birth? And how does it happen? These are questions that Nicodemus was probably wondering. And so Jesus, the master teacher, explains it to him in his third lesson. Number three, the new birth is the Holy Spirit's work. The new birth is the Holy Spirit's work. Verses five through eight. Nicodemus, he thought on physical terms. When Jesus said he needed to be born again, his mind went to reentering his mother's womb. But Jesus isn't talking about physical things. He's talking about spiritual things. John 3, 5-7 says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. So do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to Spirit We inherited our sin nature from Adam in our physical birth. So we need a new spiritual birth to cleanse us and to give us a new nature. To be born of water means that when the Holy Spirit creates new life, he cleanses the sinner from their sin. To be born of spirit means that the Holy Spirit transforms the sinner. He puts a new spirit within them, a new nature that loves and obeys God. Now, this shouldn't have been a new concept for Nicodemus. He should have understood it because he was an expert teacher of the Old Testament. Jesus was likely referring to Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-four through 27, which you ladies looked up in your lesson this week. In this passage, God promised spiritual renewal to his people through the new covenant. He promised to cleanse his people from their sins and to give them a new heart. He promised to create a new spirit within them which would love him and worship him and to put his Holy Spirit in them. This spiritual transformation coupled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, would enable God's people to love, worship, and obey him. You must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand these truths. As a Pharisee, he was likely too confident in his own ability to keep the law, to even realize that he needed to repent, much less that he needed spiritual cleansing and a new heart, But unless someone is spiritually transformed and their sins washed away, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot enter the perfect kingdom of heaven, ruled by the holy king of heaven, without a spiritual transformation. So don't be amazed when Jesus says, you must be born again. It is the Holy Spirit who cleanses the believer and who creates a new nature within her. It is the Holy Spirit who indwells her and who causes her to walk in obedience to God. But how does the Holy Spirit work? Who does the Holy Spirit regenerate? How do you know when the Holy Spirit is working? Right. These are good questions. Well, in verse 8, we get a glimpse into the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus compares the work of the Holy Spirit to the wind. Verse 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I grew up in Oklahoma, and it seemed to me that the winds blew constantly. In the summer... The winds were like the blast of a heater. And the winter winds, they would shatter. They would just shatter ice-covered trees. But the most devastating display of the wind's power is in the spring, which is tornado season. Now, when I was a 13-year-old girl in May of 1999, I looked out my window And I saw the most powerful tornado that had ever been recorded in Oklahoma history up to that point. Now, most tornadoes, they only touch the ground for a moment. But this tornado, the one I saw, lasted for almost one and a half hours on the ground. It traveled 38 miles and it left a mile-wide path of destruction through the Oklahoma City metro. It demolished everything in its path. The next day, as the dust began to settle, my dad drove me alongside the path of the storm to see its destruction. This stands out so vividly in my memories. We saw cars crumpled up in the tops of the trees like a piece of paper. We saw whole neighborhoods just leveled, completely leveled to the ground. We saw houses that were blown off of their foundation right next door to houses that were left completely untouched. The wind is powerful. And it's gentle. It can devastate and it can refresh. You can't see the wind, but you can certainly see its work. You can see its effects. And so it is in the life of those who are regenerated, who are born again. The Holy Spirit, he works as he wishes. He's like a tornado that touches down and to turn one home over while leaving the other standing. The Holy Spirit will touch down and he'll turn one family member's heart to God while leaving another family member dead in their sins. Just as the wind blows where it wishes, you can't control it. The Holy Spirit saves those whom he wishes. And when the Holy Spirit works, everyone can see the effects of the work. And Christian, I know you can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. I know you can, because he's like the wind. He works as he wishes, and though you can't see him, you see his work. You can look back on your life and you can observe the signs of genuine faith. Maybe even this week where you have loved God and his word, you've repented of your sins. You have been able to see the glory and the loveliness of Jesus. Look at the work of God in your life. Can't you find joy? Can't you find assurance and hope? In the work of salvation that God's done. But some of you, maybe as you listen even right now, you realize you have not seen any work. It's like you're stapling fruit to the branches because there's no life of Christ in the tree, in the root. That this lack of effect in your life has demonstrated that the wind of the Holy Spirit has not moved in your life. You must be born again. So listen closely to Jesus' next lesson. Number four, the fourth lesson from the master teacher. The new birth produces faith. This is verses nine through seventeen. In verses 9 through 13, Nicodemus didn't understand any of the lessons that Jesus taught up to this point, and he did not receive Jesus' words, so Jesus rebuked him for his unbelief. Jesus alone has come from heaven. He alone has full spiritual knowledge and is capable of revealing heavenly things. He alone knows what it takes to be right with God, but Nicodemus was still unbelieving. Nicodemus, he thought that he was the most qualified person to assess Jesus, but he didn't even understand the most basic spiritual principles. He may have been a Pharisee. He might have been a member of the Sanhedrin and even a teacher, the teacher of Israel, but he couldn't even comprehend the simplest truths that a baby Christian can understand. It's like Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, even a brand new student knows more than you. Even a spiritual baby knows more than you. Do you want to enter the kingdom? Do you want to have eternal life? You must believe in the son of man. You must believe in the Son of Man. Verse 14 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The dead sinner can't cause herself to be born again. Only God can do that. The blind sinner can't see glory. Only God can fix that. But when the father draws the sinner to himself and when the Holy Spirit works and regenerates the sinner's soul, the sinner responds. Her response, it comes as naturally as breathing, as naturally as blinking. The sinner looks up with newly opened spiritual eyes and sees Jesus She looks up and sees Jesus lifted up on the cross. The spirit directs her eyes at the sun and she sees his glory and she believes. She believes. One pastor compares this belief to the first cry of a newborn baby. The spirit directs her eyes on the sun and the moment she's born again, the first cry of the new birth is faith. 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 The first cry. You must believe in the Son of Man. The only hope for the doomed soul is Jesus because he bore her sin and granted her perfect righteousness So that she might stand before a just and a holy God. The newly regenerated soul is granted the ability by God to look and believe on the son of man. She looks with faith. Like a beggar asking for bread. She asks God to do in her what she cannot do for herself. She asks that God will save her. She asks. And God saves Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus will enter the kingdom of heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This remedy, it's outside of ourselves. It's sent from God. It's because of his great love. And it's for all who would believe in him. Jesus is the savior of the world. Eternal life, salvation, grace through Jesus alone. The new birth creates faith, faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit regenerates your heart and he grants you vision so that you can see the loveliness of Jesus and worship him. And that is the kind of belief Jesus believes. That is the kind of belief Jesus believes have you been born again you will know it because of the spirit's work within you you believe him and you love him have you been born again you will know it because you will see the glory of jesus and look to him for salvation but friend if you realize you haven't been born again listen to jesus You must believe in the Son of Man. You need to remember that the new birth is God's business, but don't let that be an excuse. If you see your sin, if you see the glory of Jesus, and it's becoming visible to you even right now, look to Jesus and live. But if you can't see the glory of God still, Ask him for sight. Ask God to save you. But if you won't, Jesus has one last lesson for you, and it's a sober one. The fifth and the final lesson from the master teacher is a warning that, this is number five, unbelief produces judgment. Unbelief produces judgment. Verses 18 through 21. Verse 18 says he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. For those who persist in unbelief. There is only judgment. In fact, like verse 18 says, those who don't believe have been judged already because they have not believed in Jesus. But there's a reason for their unbelief, and I don't want you to miss this. There's a reason for their unbelief. This is the judgment. They love darkness. They love to hide And they love their sin. They won't step into the light. Because they hate the one who is called the light of the world. Friend, if you're here today and you are persisting in your unbelief. The master teacher, he has exposed the real reason behind your unbelief. You don't believe because you love your sin, not God. If you refuse to turn from your sin, it's because you love the darkness and you hate the light. And because the end of unbelief is judgment and separation from God in hell for eternity, I plead with you right now, turn from your sin today. Ask yourself, What sin do you love so much that you would rather have it than have Jesus forever? If you will reject your sin and take your eyes off of yourself and put them on Jesus, he will forgive you. He will pardon your sin and the perfect righteousness of Christ. It will count for you. It will count for you. Listen to the promise of the Savior in verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You must believe in the Son of Man. Unbelief hides and hates the light. Unbelief hates God's remedy for sin. Unbelief doesn't even see sin as a problem. But John 1, 12 through 13 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Friend, step into the light. Believe in this Savior and become a child of God. In John 3, 1 through 21, we've sat at the master teacher's feet And we've learned five important truths about salvation. We've learned that the new birth is an essential work of the Holy Spirit, which produces faith in Jesus. But for those who persist in unbelief and reject the work of Christ on the cross, their unbelief produces judgment. But now we'll move into the second half of John 3, where we'll begin to sit under a new teacher we will learn two lessons from John the Baptist, the greatest Old Testament prophet. This is number two in our outline. Lessons from the greatest prophet, verses 22 through 36. And we're going to learn two lessons from John the Baptist. Up until now in the Gospel of John, Jesus had ministered only for a short time and in relative obscurity, while John the Baptist was extremely well-known and popular. John the Baptist was the last and the greatest, oldest, I mean the greatest Old Testament prophet. Jesus himself said of John in Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John's ministry, it overlapped with Jesus as he prepared the way for Messiah he called Israel to repentance and he testified that Jesus was the son of god the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world but in verses 22 through 26 John's disciples were a little concerned things were transitioning some of John's disciples we saw last time we met right had already left to follow Jesus The crowds that had gathered around John as he baptized in the the Jordan, now they flocked around Jesus. John's popularity was dwindling. Everyone was coming to see Jesus now instead of John. As John's ministry faded away, the old covenant was fading with it. Something better was here. The promised new covenant between God and his people was on the horizon. And the mediator of that covenant had finally arrived. John's ministry was about to come to a close. But he still had some very important things to say before his ministry ended. And he will teach us now how to take our eyes off of ourselves and to place them on Jesus. Do you see the similarity in Jesus's and John the Baptist's messages? We're going to learn how to put our eyes on Jesus also from John the Baptist. Let's start read. This is verses. Um, so number one um, from his lesson is to be a faithful disciple, we must have a proper view of ourselves. To be a faithful disciple, we must have a proper view of ourselves. Verses 22 through 30. And let's start reading in verse 25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understood who he was. He understood his role. He understood that everything he had was given to him. To be sure, John's role was special. He was the final and the greatest Old Testament prophet, but he knew he could receive nothing unless it was given to him by heaven. He needed to correct his disciples' wrong thinking. They felt like ministry was a competition. But John knew his ministry had been given to him by God. They didn't want to see John's influence and theirs decrease. But John wanted to see Jesus's glory increase. These disciples, they needed to think rightly about John, and they needed to think rightly about themselves. Sisters, we can be a little bit like John's disciples, can't we? We confess that God deserves all the glory, but sometimes we have a hard time letting go of our own glory. Are you sometimes just a little too self satisfied with your efforts and your gifts? Do you want to be well known and respected, to be noticed? And praised. Or perhaps, perhaps you struggle with anxiety because you feel as though you never measure up to expectations. Maybe you don't want to be noticed because you're paralyzed by your concern about what people think about you. You are just so consumed by what everyone else thinks about you, that you give little or no thought to what God thinks about you. John really was special. Jesus confirmed it, but John knew who he really was. He knew that he was a disciple, a slave. He wasn't ambitious. He wasn't self-serving or jealous he was humble. John's joy was wrapped up in Jesus's exaltation. His delight was connected to Jesus's elevation. And for Jesus to be glorified, it was necessary that John must decrease. John understood this when he said he must increase and I must decrease. Is your joy wrapped up in the exaltation of your master? Or do you love the praise of men? To be a faithful disciple, you must have a right view of yourself. You must understand that everything you have was granted to you. Every gift, every talent, all your influence, all your blessings, everything. You must embrace the way that God has designed you and where he's placed you. And once you have a right view of yourself, you'll be free from the bondage of pleasing men. And isn't it bondage? Isn't it such a bondage? But now you can view yourself rightly, and you can be truly satisfied with pleasing God. The faithful disciple is enraptured with the glory of her master. And this will be our second lesson from the greatest prophet. Number two, to be a faithful disciple, we must have a proper view of Jesus. Verses 28 through 36. John knew that Jesus was the master and he was the slave. He understood that Jesus was the bridegroom, worthy of all praise, attention, glory, and worship. And John, as the friend of the bridegroom, he rejoiced to hear Jesus's voice. But John's disciples, they were still struggling. Their loyalty to John, it hindered them from rejoicing as Jesus' ministry and his influence grew. Their love for their teacher, it made it difficult for them to love and rejoice in the Master. In verses 31 through 36, John's, as John's ministry is eclipsed by Jesus's ministry, he speaks his final words concerning Jesus. With the old covenant fading away and the new covenant on the horizon, John shifts all the focus to Jesus. It was time for his disciples to follow a new master. It was time For his disciples to catch a vision of Jesus' glory and the work of redemption. First, in verse 31, John teaches his disciples that Jesus is from heaven, not from earth. He is from above, and he is above all. Read with me starting in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is from the earth, and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Here in John's last testimony, he points his disciples to Jesus. John testified once again... Jesus is the Christ. As Messiah, Jesus' testimony is true, and it's trustworthy. He speaks the very words of God. Because Jesus is God from heaven, his testimony is first-hand testimony. The time had come for John's remaining disciples to follow Jesus. They had listened to John, and now they must listen to and believe Jesus' own testimony about himself. Maybe some of you are a little bit like John's disciples. Me too. You're so loyal to the teachers of Jesus that sometimes you lose sight of the glory of Jesus himself. You're overly enamored with the faithful Bible teachers of our time, and praise God for them, that your conversations quickly become more about man than about God. Some of you are at this church because our pastor is well known, but you need to be reminded that Pastor John's entire legacy has not been about promoting himself, but about pointing to Jesus and exalting him. The testimony of people should serve to point you to the source of truth. But the testimony of Jesus is the truth. What you need most is to see glory. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Saturate yourself in his word and drink deeply from the fountain of truth. In John's closing words in verses 34 through 35, we see the triune God's work of redemption. The father sent his beloved son and he gave all things into his hands. The son speaks the very words of God because he has the spirit without limit. As one commentator says, even the unfolding of redemptive history finds its ultimate source in the loving relationships in the Godhead. If you see the glory of this Jesus, what other response is there but belief? What other response is there but faith to follow and to serve and to love? And verse 36 is the climax of chapter 3. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Here at the end of John 3, as the old covenant faded away with the ministry of the last Old Testament prophet, one thing becomes very clear. Jesus is the only access to god can you see how the messages of the master teacher and the greatest prophet they are in perfect unity as we listened to the master teacher and the greatest prophet, we have learned truths that exalt Jesus and and they strip us of our self-reliance and our strength so that we might have assurance and joy in the unilateral work of salvation that God has graciously granted to us. We have seen that the new birth is essential to enter the kingdom. And because God has granted it to us. We have assurance that we will be with him forever. Do you worry sometimes that you can lose your salvation? And remember, the new birth is not a result of your effort. If you couldn't do anything to earn it, you can be assured you can't do anything to lose it. Are you discouraged today with your battle against sin, just the struggle day in and day out? Remember that as a Christian, your sins have already been washed away because the Holy Spirit has applied the work of Christ to your account. Therefore, with the strength Of the Spirit. Press into the means of grace like the Word of God and prayer and fellowship that you might become what you already are and find joy in Jesus. Do you lack assurance? Remember, the new birth produces faith. Look for the signs of genuine faith in your life. Do you have a love for God that manifests itself in repentance and obedience? Are you humble? Do you desire to see God God glorified? Find assurance. When you see your heart trusting and loving your Lord, because that faith did not originate with you. It was a gift given to you by God. Do you know you're not saved? Are you sitting here still? and you know you're not saved? Remember, unbelief produces judgment. Let me remind you, true assurance and joy can only be found in Jesus. Are you discontent? Are you self-absorbed? Remember, you must have a proper view of yourself. God doesn't make any mistakes. He designed you and he loves you and he has given you the exact work he wants you to do. Find true contentment and joy by taking your eyes off of yourself. Put them on Jesus. Be thankful for God's wisdom and his care for you. And do you want lasting happiness? Lasting happiness. Remember, you must have a proper view of Jesus. Stop trying so hard to find happiness in another person or by exalting yourself. Because the only place where ultimate happiness comes from is exalting Christ. And ladies, have your hearts, have they been encouraged? by these incredible truths? Have you looked and have you seen the glory of your God? This entire lesson has been about the greatness of your salvation and the joy that's only possible in Jesus. Be humbled that the Father graciously chose to love you. Recognize the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that has granted you faith and repentance unto unto salvation. Be grateful as you trust in the work of Jesus, your Savior, and rejoice in your great God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for choosing us and sending your Son to save us. Holy Spirit, thank you for cleansing and transforming us and for opening our eyes to see the glory of our precious Savior so that we might love and trust him for salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for purchasing us with your own blood. Our triune God, you are glorious in your work of salvation. Give us eyes to see even more, even more of your glory. Amen.